Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me for this episode is author and historian Dr Richard Sugg. Richard has written both fiction and non-fiction on a wide range of subjects, from John Donne in 2007, through to mummies, cannibals and vampires in 2011, fairies, a dangerous history in 2018, and more recently, a history of disgust, from Jesus Christ to Boris Johnson in 2023. His research has featured in popular magazines and press, and Richard has appeared on international television and radio, in addition to guesting on various podcasts. He has been published with institutions such as BBC History, The Guardian, The Lancet, Der Spiegel, and The New Yorker. He has also published three edited collections of historic stories with a Fortean twist A Century of Supernatural Stories. A Century of Ghost Stories, and A Singing Mouse at Buckingham Palace. These books come together in recent research Richard has done on animal homing instincts, which are perhaps most famously exemplified by Bobby the Wonder Dog, who returned to his family home in Oregon after a six-month, 3,000-mile journey in February 1924. In the first half of the interview, I talked with Richard about some of the subjects he has written on, and how his interest in weirder topics progressed during that time, which has seen his attitude to the paranormal change accordingly. We talk about some of the ghostly encounters that have been reported to him, and the validity of anecdotal evidence, which for a lot of paranormal phenomena is extensive. After that, we focus on Richard's current research into the remarkable homing abilities of animals like Bobby the Wonder Dog, along with other examples such as Railway Jack, Lampo, and an Irish terrier called Prince. Fascinating stuff indeed. Enjoy! Richard, welcome to the podcast. Many thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. You've written numerous books, both non-fiction and fiction. Um, Looking at your bibliography... The earlier books that you wrote seem to be sort of looking at the, the weirder aspects of things like anatomy and, and medicine. What drew you to those subjects first off? Yeah, I can remember way, way back uh, being in tutorials in Leeds University in the 90s with the late, great Park Honan, who was a, a fine kind of Renaissance and Shakespearean scholar, but also a great all-rounder, which I think has got a bit endangered and Honan uh, wrote books on Austin, I think, on uh, Marlowe but also on Browning. Uh, and he was just a great character, really memorable, wonderful character. And it was then I thought that there was something dense enough, really. There was something strange and other enough about the Renaissance, particularly Dunn, actually, on whom I published my first book, John Dunn, uh, one of the great minds of the Renaissance, probably the most important uh, writer in the Renaissance after Shakespeare. And um, very interesting, restless figure with a kind of dualistic mentality looking backwards as we would see it and forwards to to the modern world as well. 
Um, so yeah, there was that book on done, a uh, book on anatomy as this huge new challenging medical discipline struggling out of the clutches of theology in the 16th century, uh, Vesalius particularly, but then just scores, hundreds of people really taking up anatomy as a very powerful intellectual tool. And we're still kind of left with the remnants of it now. Um, people talk about anatomizing and dissecting subjects. Sometimes people are not medics, but but analysis really is is a descendant of that very powerful uh, sense of cutting something up in all its detail, uh, getting to the depths of it and so forth. And analysis is, is probably the most powerful uh, single intellectual catchword we, we come across most of the time. And then I stumbled on the subject of medicinal cannibalism uh, in around 2002 or three, and first published an article on it, and then found that BBC History was very interested in it. And from then on, I was pursuing this and getting wider and wider eyed as I stumbled on one after another crazy story on a subject which had been pretty much whitewashed out of history and perhaps for obvious reasons that were this great sort of history of medical progress, enlightenment, triumph over adversity in nature. Uh, they didn't really want to talk about the fact that from the 15th century to the 18th century and quite a way into the time of Dr. Johnson, uh, people were using just about every part of the human body for medicine at the same time as they were denouncing the cannibals of the Americas uh, as as the scum of the earth, pretty much. And so, yeah, I I uh, progressed from that to a book on the soul, the kind of strange frictions between medicine and theology, again, at a different level. Uh, the fact that the soul was in the human body has been forgotten to a large extent, but they were looking for it in anatomy is wondering how it related to the blood when people in... Um, Germany or Austria were drinking blood at execution scaffolds until, it's worth noting, 1865 or so, they were in the belief that they were swallowing the power of the human soul uh, for, for forms of medicine. And so The Smoke of the Soul is a book on a strange kind of journey from uh, theological through to a modern version of the, of the body and where the soul kind of went in the 18th century and they gave up trying to find it. And recently, a big, big book, huge book, um, has been Talking Dirty, History of Disgust from Jesus Christ to Boris Johnson, which hmm. uh, I made, I think, I hope, a lot more fun and colourful than the subject of disgust might uh, suggest. But I think disgust is so important because as one of the six big emotions in Darwin's classification, it's the one that doesn't get talked about. So it's a kind of dark alternative history of all the ways we make ourselves human, all the things we push away from ourselves, and how those things change to a startling degree over quite a short period of time. Um, you know, I can remember being a child and no one was very disgusted by smoking, and that's become a huge, huge one in you know campaigns about censoring cinema and TV and, and so forth in recent years. So that one was great fun uh, and is is the most recent non-fiction. I'm hoping to do a book on the uncanny abilities of animals, perhaps sometime this year. And the story of how um, I got onto animals uh, and dogs is, is largely due to my mother, who didn't really get why I was writing all these rather macabre books. And uh, finally, I felt I owed her 
Um, it was the least I could do, really, and the incredible job she did bringing up us as children, um, almost single-handed in lots of ways. I owed her a book, and that book was uh, Singing Mouse at Buckingham Palace, which is a story of um, quite startling animal stories from the 19th century. And lots of crazy dog stories. We'll pick up a few of them in, in a moment or so, I think. Um, but yeah, that book was dedicated to my mother. And sadly, she passed on a few years ago in, uh, in January. And since then, I was able to dedicate to her memory, but also to her dog, a childhood dog named Pat, who was really a heroic dog for all seasons dedicate to to the two of them their memories um a novel called carly the wonder dog which is historical kind of romp through 1930s london based partly on a real dog that was on stage um uh in in actually the early 19th century but um i wanted to move it into 1930s london because uh, i wanted to look at a kind of whimsical but in some ways serious um view of 1930s politics from the eyes of a dog and as you might know there were some very ugly things going on in the 1930s even as people were more and more aware of what Hitler was doing in Germany uh, the aristocratic um, Oswald Mosley was marching black-shirted fascists into the Jewish East End of London in 1936 and he was granted a police escort by the Home Secretary so this was to me a way of looking at historic British racism at a time when we've all been suffering so badly from Brexit and it's really made a wreckage of, of the country and made the country more divided perhaps than any time since the English Civil War. So that book is is fun I think to read and can be read from anyone age 11 upwards uh, but it does have a kind of serious message underneath it so yeah I um, I hope my mother's enjoyed it from her. Her side of things. Um, um, I've got early memories of a lovely dog we had when we were kids, but actually the memory that I think is most powerful is that of my mother, and it's still with my uncle now, who's who's 90, uh, but very sharp with his memories still. And it was in the 1940s, I think, that in a very accidental way compared to all the sort of care that goes into choosing pets now, um, my grandfather on the maternal side was travelling for work a lot of the time with the post office and he would stay at uh, lodgings. I had a landlady down the south coast, I think the family was in Hertfordshire, and he was away there when the landlady said, hey, come out here to the garage, do you want one of these? And here was a dog with a litter of puppies, I'm not sure how many, but uh, kind of collie, I think terrier cross, um, Pat was, I'll send you a picture. And the happiest moment of my mother's life she recalled vividly pretty much as though she was still there at the age of 85 was the night that he came back with this puppy in his pocket which became pat and was a, a great great companion to all the children uh, and did himself um perform more than one feat of homing not a huge distance but i think some way because he was stolen at some point uh, away for some days and they might have given him up when he turned up quite well but with a rope around his neck which suggested that somebody had made him a, a kind of impromptu lead and was going to take him off of the circus or or who knows but but pat like so many other dogs um knew how to get back without thinking about it so yeah i've, I've always liked strange things and uh, although the dogs and the animals might seem very different from the, from the macabre world of 
body snatching, anatomy, medicinal cannibalism, and and so on. I think the the fact that it's something people don't know about and that it needs explaining actually, and I think you know it's the wonder of all these journeys and all these abilities in dogs and other animals that that fascinate me profoundly still. Yeah, absolutely. In regards to the books you've written on on those sort of more macabre subjects, um, did you have to be careful in how you approach that from an academic point of view um, in terms of some of the areas that might you might get taken into uh, on some of those subject matters? In, in what sense that it would um, offend somebody or? More in terms of, I generally get the sense that you know, the, the paranormal and 14 subjects are not encouraged to be written about. No, good point. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I haven't really talked. We'll come to this probably, but I haven't really talked about the fact that I, I stumbled. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, I stumbled on the subject of ghosts and poltergeists, um, writing a book called The Real Vampires, which is which is out now in paperback. And the people who believed in vampires, I mean, they could be actually scared to death. This is not a myth. They could be scared to death by the belief that a vampire was coming for them. I think they were talking about some kind of poltergeist, some kind of ghost most of the time. So they weren't really just imagining this but um you could make sense of most of their beliefs uh by a bit of careful thought rummaging further research the thing i couldn't make sense of was that they did seem to be talking about poltergeists uh, across europe across centuries and yeah showers of stones being thrown through windows from nowhere hammering noises on the roof with no source people being thrown out of bed attacked people in a state of absolute terror. I mean, they fled their village, uh, for example, on Mykonos uh, in 1700. And I started reading about poltergeist. I thought I better follow this story where it goes. And it's a good point that you do come across some unease and some sort of embarrassment or scowling or what have you in academic circles. And yet what really got me going on this subject, because I couldn't quite believe it for a long time. I mean, all these people are saying the same thing, every type of person, but it's outside all of our normal frames of reference pretty much and certainly out of what's taken for rational science. Anyway, I've been reading about this at great length. I think my head hurt. I was in the British Library in London put the books on the desk and went out for lunch. And it was an old friend and colleague that I'd known for um, about eight years. We'd been through some quite heavy weather, been some tough problems for a friend of ours who we'd we'd had to look out for. So we got quite close, really, and, you know, talked about a lot of different things. And we talked about this and that for about an hour. And then I said, have you ever come across Poltergeist? It was really on my mind. And she at this point went white, silent, very nervous, uh, and presently said, can we go somewhere more private? So off we went somewhere more private, actually, to the Quaker Garden down the road, if you know on Euston Road. And um, we talked about Poltergeist because she'd had a Poltergeist following her from one house to another. They moved house across 18 months, which is how long it lasted. Um, it followed her to work. Uh, she was working in London by by this time. And so it would get gone at her workplace. Very typical of poltergeist that you, you're talking about what was once called a haunted person or haunted people that, you know, moving from your house doesn't make any difference. And I know somebody now wrote to me today, actually, from Seattle, deeply haunted person who 
he, he did move into a haunted house. I mean, that was the only wrong thing he did, if you can call it that. By bad luck, uh, when he was about 42, moved into a very, very haunted house uh, in Seattle. And it's never left him alone ever since. He's moved many times. He's been followed by this uh, in workplaces, many hotels, his workplace on planes at 60,000 feet. He's been shoved around by whatever this is. And, you know, any listeners that start scowling and thinking, God, will you talk about something sensible? I don't blame you because it took me a very, very long time to get my head around this. But this friend I'd known for eight years telling me this. A few weeks later, I go back to Cardiff where I uh, was still living and I, I live now and sitting outside a bar on a summer evening with a friend I've known for 12 years. I've got to say a very, very matter of fact person, head of department, major historian, you know, very fact-based, rational guy. And he sits quiet for a moment and says, well, here's one for you. Turns out he lived in a haunted house uh, in his youth. His sister was a bit younger uh, and they were left alone by the parents for quite a long periods of time. And yeah, they had a poltergeist. They also had a ghost. And I, I listened to him talking about the poltergeist. All right, I want more and more information on this now. I didn't really listen to him talking about the ghost because there's quite a lot of people you might know who take poltergeists very seriously, even follow them, document them, investigate cases. William Roll was an example, and they do not believe in ghosts. They do not believe in afterlife. The poltergeist is just the kind of rush of bad energy being let off like steam from some very troubled person, usually a teenager, perhaps a little bit more often a girl. And so it took me a long time to get the ghost thing. But in the end, kind of same thing. A lot of people tell me about ghosts, uh, about poltergeist. These are students of mine. These are staff at the university. Um, and so I'm taking those seriously. And eventually, a lot of people are telling me about ghosts. And I think uh, if we come to it, one of the stories that fascinated me from one of my students um, from a very you know, serious professional family was one that shows very clearly if children start telling you they've seen a ghost, listen to them, take them seriously. And uh, a broad question that is fascinating among many here is why do dogs and animals and children see ghosts when adults cannot uh what's interesting about the animal side is that people often say well you've got some imagination there junior you know you like your imaginary friend you like making things up you like attention we don't think that about dogs you know okay they might mm -hmm. like a certain form of attention but it's not the kind of attention where they're telling you crazy stories to to string you along is it so if, if a dog is reacting to something like that they're reacting to something in a little bit of the way that a dog reacts to an electrical storm before we know about it to an epileptic fit before the epileptic actually suffers that fit of course dogs are now trained for that so yeah the it was a funny kind of dualistic experience you know you've got loads of your students very hard-headed people one of them's now a barrister uh telling you stories about ghosts and poltergeists um i used to go to a local pool and i was getting stories from the local friends i had there um, sometimes two in one night some amazing stories and data i got um and yet yeah i went to a um talk on levitation um visiting speaker or visiting fellow was was staying at durham to do his research and he gave this talk on levitation and flying and i thought well i better you know some of this stuff is coming up in the podcast case i better listen to this so i stamped up this hill after giving a late lecture uh got to this talk did find it very disappointing and superficial um and thought well i'll have a stab at the end 
with the questions. Um, do you think that any of these people levitating, you're talking about Catholic saints here and lots of witnesses and witnesses are converted to the belief in this by seeing the person levitate. Do you think any of this actually happened? And immediately the chair is, is very irritable. Um, the audience doesn't seem very interested. The speaker is a bit baffled. Um, and I think that's a waste of time. But behind me, somebody starts tapping with the shoulder. Look, can we, can we go out and have a talk? Can we go and talk? So this guy um, and I stand in the corridor whispering. And uh, he's very glad I've raised this subject. You know, this kind of thing has happened to him. It's important to get this discussed. And I think, God, who is he? You know, some theology lecturer. No, he's a physicist, you know. And so this was a lesson in the fact that these stories are there, but people are embarrassed to talk about them. And it does bother me, you know, even if I didn't really believe this or I was just deeply agnostic um, on this subject, it would bother my sense of fair play that people are getting gaslit, they're getting embarrassed, they're getting uh, abused and trolled, in fact, if they raise these questions. And I think there's a fair evidence to me already now. I've got hundreds of these stories. I've been studying it for 10 years, uh, sorry, almost 12 years. And um, fair evidence that women are getting more trolled and gaslit on this subject because they're more ready to talk about these things and it's possible that they they're a bit more sensitive to them as well so yeah that was a strange experience but i gotta say what's funny about ghosts is not that they're spooky they're dark they're terrifying sometimes they are but it's actually what's funny is that they're hiding right under our noses in plain sight all you've got to do is go and ask people ask a complete stranger every day and you will get countless ghost stories in a year i, I promise you i've done it mm, yeah i I was reading uh, on your website, you were talking about how, and you mentioned it uh, earlier, it took you a little bit of time to become more comfortable with the subject matter of ghosts, but it was the, the sheer weight of stories that you encountered that helped you with that. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's really like any research, you know, if you've got enough evidence, then you, then you take it seriously. You've got a, you've got a subject, you know, it's, it's not just a few wacky people who like wacky subjects. It's every possible type of person. I mean, it really is every, you know, social, professional, uh, global type talking about this and across history, it goes back way, way BC. Mm. And as well, you, you mentioned there, a frame of reference for understanding ghosts. I was in the, the episode previous to this one, I was talking to an author who writes ghost stories yeah. and she lives in Newfoundland in Canada and was telling me okay. a story from there. And it was such a personal event for the people that witnessed this ghost um, that they encountered. And mm. I've always thought that storytelling is a, and stories are a great, a great frame of reference for ghosts and, and why they're important and culturally important as well. I, from your own writing and your own research, do you think there's a, a best way to frame a discussion on ghosts and, and the paranormal? That's a good question. I think there's some people who will never listen to you, you know, and what made, what I realized with this, and you're probably aware of this is that we, we, are very good at processing data that comes into us, you know. Um, and at a certain point, we kind of think we know all the categories of information that are going to come and the boxes we can put them in. And it was just a, a few weeks, pretty much, after my father died when I was just 19. It was very sudden. He was young-ish, really. He was 62. It was just a few weeks after that that we had a great lecturer, um, somebody who'd probably be good on your podcast, actually, um, 
And Mike used to tell us stories when he thought we were a bit weary of sociology. And I think there's many people like myself to remember these wonderful stories of his wayward school days, his, his early uh, wayward jobs before he became a, a sociology lecturer. But one of them was just off the scale of anything I'd come across. Um, that was that he had a poltergeist um, for well over a year, I think it was. And yeah, hopefully he can tell you about it himself in detail. But what was odd about that was that you, nobody could distrust Mike. I, I don't think anybody did. I mean, he was the most kind of hard-headed, straightforward, very capable guy, very good with his hands, making all sorts of things. And yeah, very political guy. So when Mike told you something that just didn't make sense, it really messed with your head. This, this bit of information that couldn't be true uh, but couldn't be untrue because Mike had told you was moving about, kind of bouncing about restlessly in your head. And in my case, for, yeah, uh, well over 20 years, you know, until I began to get all these stories coming to me from print and from people. So I, I think some people will process something better if they've read a lot of cases, if there's kind of academic research on it. I mean, there's pretty good science of the poltergeist which I find intriguing. Some people will do better if they just sit down and look somebody in the eye. And I do think that counts for a lot. You know, there's a lot of very loose, very woolly discussion from kind of pseudo skeptics. Um, they've hijacked the whole Wikipedia uh, side of the paranormal, sadly. It's a real mess. Uh, and they talk about things being irrational. Um, they talk about anecdotal evidence as though this is garbage. It's not garbage. Anecdotal just means something somebody said. It's not rubbish because somebody said it and didn't write it down. If it was, we wouldn't have a legal system because that is exactly how the legal system works. Somebody stands up and says something and it has big, big consequences, as hopefully Donald Trump will be finding out in a while. Um, so, yeah, some people will deal better with people. Um, looking at them and telling them. Some people will deal better with print. Maybe some people will deal better with the uh, scientific side. One case I really like is the Canetto di Carinia, um craziness, which went on in, I think, the 90s. And it went on in two phases. It, it kind of evacuated the whole hamlet of Canetto in Sicily for a long time and sent in all sorts of scientists and government officials. And there were quite a lot of poltergeist things, the kind of car door locks going crazy, uh, mobile phones going crazy, but most of all fires. Uh, and this is about the worst thing a poltergeist can do to you is serious, aggressive fires, because they will burn a house down in lots of cases eventually. And all the huge weight of Italian science officials electric board etc on top of this i think in both cases because it had two different phases with years separating them all of this could not explain what was happening and yet nobody denies that happened usually the thing is to slur to troll uh, to gaslight the person reporting the case. But in this case, it's absolutely a matter of public record. There's a very feeble attempt to kind of blame it all on one guy who couldn't possibly have done all these things. It just, you you, you know, you, you'd have to be a kind of magician to, to have pulled off all those cases as one person in such a tiny place as well. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a cracking one that's very weird um, and very real and, and has not been explained away and people do actually admit that it happened so it's a difficult one i think some people you're never going to convince them some people you set the data before them and just let them think about it and the thing i recommend most people is ask your friends ask your family 
you know, my mother told me about ghosts and I didn't listen to her for a very long time until I picked up the subject. And when we were having calls about it about 10 years ago, she's telling me things that I'd never heard before, that there's no way my mother could have made up because they're so completely weird. You'd have to know poltergeist literature to, to even imagine that they could happen. So, yeah, it's amazing how many times are lurking about amongst your friends, your family. Uh, you know, I found this myself uh, very quickly. So that's probably if you're not going to trust your, your family or your friends, you know, then, uh, there's not much you can do. Really. Yeah. And I suppose as well, for a long time, subject matter that would be considered supernatural or paranormal has been othered to some extent uh, in such a way that it's sort of almost kept off to one side away from the rest of Western culture. But that's an illusion, isn't it? Because from your own work, your own writing, it it doesn't take all that long before you, you find yourself encountering something really weird in a, in a subject such as anatomy or medicine or, or something that on, on face value, you wouldn't at first say, well, I'm going to find ghosts here or I'm going to find a connection to Bigfoot here. But it seems like it's something that, that can happen. Yeah, I think really, you know, a big question that should be asked more is what stops you listening? You know, I, I relate to this because I was very good at not listening to the bits I didn't want to hear. And for a long time, it was I didn't want to hear any of this stuff about ghosts, poltergeists, what have you. Um, so that that is a is a really fascinating question and the way that people's frame of the possible gets set very hard. Um, yeah, it's... Um, it's it's a, a fascinating kind of divide between childhood and adulthood, particularly, I think, you know, these different phases. But certainly children, you know, have access to the paranormal ghosts, past life memories. Um, I, I, you know, I was in an airport for just five minutes talking to a woman as we were waiting for the boarding queue. And I was outlining the books I wrote and the ones I wanted to write on ghosts, which would be the most interesting. She was very polite and kind of quiet. And I thought she just thinks this person's completely mad. I hope he's going to go away soon. And then she pipes up and says, um, well, that's interesting because when I was a little girl and she meant kind of, you know, one or under, um, an old lady used to come and read to me in bed every night. I didn't really think much of it. A nice old lady comes through in bed every night. You know, there's nothing to dislike about that. Um, and uh, when she was about 18, at this point, I was talking to her, she was 19, uh, about 18, she says to her uncle, you know, this old lady used to come and read to me in bed every night. I'm not really sure who it was. And he says, was that her? Points at a photograph. Uh, Esme says, yeah, that was her. Well, that was your grandmother who died before you were born. And I think one thing people need to realise about the paranormal is children's sense of what's, you know, normal, possible is very different to ours. And there's something healthy about that. In a lot of cases, if you say that they're seeking attention and so forth, well, how are they? Because she never thought she'd seen a ghost until she was 18. You know, she wasn't going telling everyone about it. There's many cases like that. People I know well have had that similar experience. And yeah, if you think about it, that's exactly what a grandmother or grandfather would do. That is exactly what they would do. People don't change that much when they die. If they're nasty and miserable when they're alive, they're nasty and miserable when they're dead. Um, and if they were lovely people when they're alive, who who you know love children, then that that's what they'll do uh, when they pass over. So it's you know it's there's, there's a lot to be grateful for in this subject. Um, there's a lot of hope and um, 
light in it. Um, but yeah, the way that people's framework gets set very hard, I think some of it, to be honest with you, uh, you know, people who get very, very angry about this, people who just get very derisive and, and furious, and you see this on these kind of uh, web forums and things, I think they've got probably a form of OCD. It would be fair to say that, you know, that everything's got to be so precise and so neatly ordered that they get furious and kind of confused and disorientated if they have to process something uh, a little bit difficult. But it is, you know, it's hard. It, I, I was nudged into the subject kind of by accident. I pursued it because that's what I did. That was my job. Yeah. Um, another subject that you've written on is fairies. And I can admit that up until relatively recently, I probably would have maybe slightly scoffed at the concept of the existence of fairies, to my shame. So would, so would um, I. But, so would I, yeah. yeah. But now, having done a bit of reading, I, I'm completely on board. <laughs> Um, I, yeah. I mean, and it's and it's similar to what you're saying about people's experience with ghosts. So there are just too many examples of people encountering something that, if you were to describe it, well, that's a that's a fairy. Like you've you've, you've encountered a gnome or something. It's mm. there are just too many cases of where people have have had that sort of experience. Yeah, that's it. That they they are again, they're every type, possible type of person. Um, children maybe have a bit more access to this but what's also interesting is that dogs react very strongly to something that a, a, an adult human is seeing um, they react in quite a hostile way sometimes quite frightened and the the creatures in question uh, can be quite ugly uh, alarming uh, they don't follow modern stereotypes um, and yeah, I, I started off this book thinking there could be a lot of strange stuff. There was a lot more strange stuff than I expected. Uh, but the one thing I think I was going to have to bother about or waste any time with is do fairies exist? And yet there's a massive 400-page book um, edited by um, Crumbs, Simon. And uh, Simon will come to you in a moment. At, um, Simon Young. Yeah, it's called Sig Simon Young, thank you, thank you. Um, so, yeah, edited by Simon Young, um, collected by a woman called Marjorie Johnson way back, um, seeing fairies, you know, every possible type of person is in there. Um, and you, 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 you can't just call them all uh, fantasists, I don't think. So, yeah, I've never seen one. I probably never will. I don't... Uh, I've met one guy who saw something very odd, which sounded like a fairy type when he was a kid. Uh, I think his school friend saw it as well. Um, but yeah, there's far too many accounts not to at least pursue the subject. You know, you can you can be agnostic if you like. I, I sympathize with that uh, because fairies are, you know, alien creatures um, knocking about down here, sometimes sighted in, in uh, UFOs, etc. Ghosts, they kind of make more sense than fairies because ghosts are just people who were alive and are now dead. Okay, it's a bit of a leap for many people, but it's not weird in the way that a completely different species. Where does it come from? Where does it live? Where is it going when it disappears? Um, that's weirder than ghosts or, or, or aliens, really, I suppose. But yeah, if it, if it keeps getting said, then pay attention, I think. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it so far. I have a favour to ask, if that's okay. Once the episode is finished, if you can leave a rating, a short review, 
and maybe even share it on social media. I'd be very grateful. They're all brilliant ways to promote some other sphere, to help people like yourself find it and increase listenership. If you would like to get in touch by email, I would love to hear from you with feedback or ideas for future topics and guests. The address is someothersphere at gmail.com. Thank you again, and now, back to the episode. So let's get on to animals, dogs, and right. their miraculous journeys. Um, what, what drew you to this subject? I, I know you've talked a little bit about it as we've had our conversation so far, but what, what drew you to the, the miraculous journeys that some of our four-legged friends have made over the years? Yeah, it it was it, funnily enough a bit of an accident. I would routinely do research on old newspaper databases, which is a terrific recent source for finding stories on your subject now. And newspapers were better in the old days, really. Local news has gone down very badly. Um, most people would agree, certainly in Britain, I suspect in America as well. Um, but there were a tremendous lot of local newspapers with very detailed, what we would consider minor stories, but actually stories about, you know, dogs finding their way back across vast amounts of America, Australia, Britain, uh, on their own with, with, with no obvious help and no map, obviously. And there were just a lot of animal stories per se. I was fascinated by how if you lived in... Uh, Britain in the 19th century, um, you probably didn't travel more than about 15 miles from your uh, town, village, what have you, unless you happened to be rich and lived in, you know, somewhere big like London, Bristol, Edinburgh. And yet, despite this very small scope of travel and physical experience, as it were, you had a very good chance of seeing an elephant, a tiger, a Tasmanian devil, a kangaroo, um, because there were menageries traveling the country and bringing these things to you. And they escaped quite a lot. So I was stumbling on these stories. They're sort of too good to, to waste. You know, I'd wrap them down and keep them for reference. And I presently realized I got a book. Um, I probably got another book like A Singing Mouse at Buckingham Palace, which in itself is not quite paranormal, but it's pretty weird by most people's standards. I mean, the fact that the central story of that title uh, is, is true, some poor people in a London slum discovered this mouse, which they first thought was their canary got loose. But no, it was a mouse singing quite beautifully. You can still read the Times journalist, you know, saying that he inspected it closely and it was definitely singing. And it was quite like a nightingale. It was it was in the Cosmorama rooms and I think Regent Street people were paying to see it. And it got so famous uh, in the 1830s. 30s, 1840s, uh, that Queen Victoria summoned it to Buckingham Palace to sing for her, her children, which I think it did after a bit of initial stage fright. And then you found that these mice were everywhere. People were paying huge amounts of money for them. Um, and they were big entertainers. Uh, there was a guy, a naturalist in America, uh, who had a mouse and his, his son, I think it was, actually scored one of the mouse's favourite songs, which the song could the mouse could sing it for about nine minutes non-stop while racing about its cage, furious pace, kind of gymnastic exercise, never stopped singing. And he, he was astonished, you know, that a professional opera singer could not sing like this if they were standing still, never mind hurtling around, uh, you know, aerobic speed. And um, yeah, I, I, one of the things I loved about this subject was I realised there was a very 
strong changing attitude to animals, a kind of mechanistic or Descartesian attitude to animals as machines was was lingering on, you know, well into the 20th century and a sort of silly denial that to be serious on the subject of animals, you had to deny they enjoyed what they did, you know, that they had feelings uh, possibly resembling humans, you know, of course, not the same. Um, And yeah, the sense that dogs enjoy certain things that this mouse enjoyed singing it it was blindingly obvious really I think um so yeah the dog stories were some of them just lovely stories of rescue um and uh love for children for family you know dogs would give their lives to save children uh the the author of next of kin wrote the book about uh chimpanzees he was changed forever really in his childhood when they were driving their pickup truck uh, along a dusty track on the farm and the dog suddenly was going crazy in front of the car and they why is it yapping why is it yapping and the dog threw itself under the car it it was killed and the reason was because in the dust storm they couldn't see the the boy's brother had fallen off his bike and was about to get run over so that the dog gave his life to save to save this child um so there's lots of wonderful stories like that but then I also started seeing stories where they're not just amazing, they're not just heroic, they're not just courageous and enduring, but actually they're really weird. Uh, and one of them is Railway Jack. Um, I stumbled on these railway dogs, which were a huge thing in the 19th century. And actually in the 20th century, um, one of the biggest ever was an Italian one that died in the 1960s called Lampo. Railway Jack was Victorian and... Um, as Greg Jenner has pointed out, there's a, a strong chance that uh, the first ever celebrity was not human. Uh, Jenner's choice for the first ever celebrity is Clara the Rhino in the 18th century. It was certainly uh, a huge celebrity in every sense, but you know, global as well as weighing several tons. And some people argue about was Byron the first celebrity, was Sarah Bernhardt, was Garrick, was Wilde. Well, if you're going to go for Wilde, then he's predated by Railway Jack, who died in 1890 and had been presented to royalty three times, had his obituary in about 25 papers uh, when he died, um, was the star of numerous posh kind of, you know, fussy dog shows, despite the fact that he was a, uh, a mixed dog with three legs toward the end of his life. He lost some lost a leg in a railway accident, perhaps not surprisingly. But Railway Jack was famous really just for his love of trains. He he travelled around mainly on the Sussex lines for a while and he, for some reason, adored Lewis Railway Station. I've been trying and I will keep trying to get a statue for Railway Jack in Lewis Railway Station. There's a statue of Lampo uh, and Oni in America is very, very famous. I think he's stuffed somewhere. Um, but Railway Jack, yeah, uncannily really and this is the word that keeps coming up in these discussions uncannily wherever he went um whatever time he was you know catching trains back from brighton or eastbourne or whatever could get back always every night without fail to sleep in lewis waiting room Uh, how did he know what trains to get on how did he know where he was going and over time he's going to london he's going to edinburgh he's going to france he always finds his way back to lewis and i i rummaged through these stories there are many of them about him in his day and a couple of them stood out perhaps even more than the weird ability with trains he almost never got on the wrong train uh unless somebody put him on a 
train well-meaningly that he didn't want to get on. You know, he ended up in Edinburgh by mistake at one point, but he was so famous that they made a great fuss of him. And uh, he came back covered in ribbons from being a mascot at a wedding or something. But there were two things really that were perhaps even weirder than that. And this was that he attached himself to station masters at Lewis and I think one other station might have been Eastbourne. And when in their old age, these two station masters died, Railway Jack somehow found their funerals. He turned up at the funeral. (laughs) You know, how on earth did he get there? How on earth did he know where to go? And you, you might want to write those off as accidents. It would be quite hard to do so, I think, really. I mean, he was very clearly waiting at the grave, watching the coffin going in, behaving like the other mourners. But there are other stories like this. Um, there, there are too many other stories of a dog finding somebody as though there is a marker on that person that might as well be a, you know, a, a GPS system to a human being or a or a, a modern machine. Um, it, it's as efficient, it's as clear, it's as precise for that dog as that technology would be for us is stories and stories about this yeah and that's something that that is apparent from um on the day that we're recording this he wrote an article for the guardian all about the miraculous journeys of of dogs and some cats i think and yeah it's it's clear from reading those that there's more going on here than a dog having a great sense of smell or or you know more often what will sort of be ascribed as the main reason that um they they were able to find their way i mean i i, re- I read a bit about uh, bobby the the wonder dog he mentioned to me when you first got in touch about being a guest and the explanation as i understand it is that the, um so he and the family that he was part of were lived in oregon and were visiting relations in indiana which is a long long way away but because after they sadly gave up hope of finding him, they stopped enough along the way back, he was able to sort of pick up on that scent. And now, that's obviously not the entirety of it in terms of initial explanations, but I think that's that's often what's cited when dogs do this. But if you look at the journey, there are, that can't be everything, can it? No, I, I no, I, I'll, I'll outline the journey, shall I, if... if um... We've got a moment because the smell thing, you're right. People are always reaching for this uh, against all reason. And it's it's when your kind of rational explanation becomes more irrational than anything else that you think, hmm, what's going on here? So, yeah, the, the family in a drive in 1923 from Oregon, uh, Silverton in Oregon, right on the West Coast, uh, by stages, stopping at what were called tourist camps. So it's a kind of a mixed petrol station uh, and... Um, place to stop for the night i don't know if they're exactly like motels but but they were useful obviously on a very long journey and with a couple of children and girls they had um leona and nova i think both under the age of 12 and yeah they um they have a nice journey bobby rides on the outside of the car because it's fairly small for the four people and luggage so he he rides on the suitcase outside or on the running board hops off to chase a rabbit comes back you know uh, it, I don't think he's doing anything paranormal to find the car, but um, 
they're quite used to him kind of coming and going. And when they get to Walcott eventually in the middle of August, uh, Frank Brazier is filling up the car when three dogs at once come out of nowhere, probably strays, and they all chase Bobby at once. Not surprisingly, he goes hurtling off. Uh, Frank doesn't think much of it. Presently, he's sounding the horn quite a lot. Bobby's not coming back. Then they're sending out search parties. They stay a bit longer than they mean to. No Bobby, no Bobby. And eventually very upset they have to keep going on their trip they've got to get back home because they run a restaurant so they're kind of effectively self-employed and um they leave notice that you know anybody who finds bobby they'll pay for the train fare if he's crated up and sent back to them and that's all they can do so as you can imagine by the autumn by christmas they've pretty much given up on bobby and yeah as a historian um most historians, I think, you know, fantasize about what's the moment they would really like to be there to actually see that happening. How did it actually happen? What did it really look like? What was the real story? What was the real drama of that, you know, rather than just the flat kind of reports we've got at a distance? And I, I got to say, um, I would love to have been there with my mother. Uh, saw Pat come home in my grandfather's pocket. But I think the one that probably beats them all is the moment in February, you know, six months after the dog has disappeared. I think it's the 14th or 15th of February. I think it's 15th because Valentine's Day is a bit too good to be true. But um, 15th of February, uh, Leona is out in the street with a girl friend and the friend says, hey, isn't that Bobby? <laughs> this very mangy emaciated dog turns around despite the state of understandable exhaustion flings itself all over uh, leona in in a state of ecstasy and is presently being fed steak and cream if your dog ever comes back from 2500 miles or more do give it steak and cream straight away even if you are vegetarian because it's the right thing to do um and yeah, uh, you know, people will. I, I tell this story to a lot of people. It's the centenary year. I've been telling it to people I know, dog walkers I bump into. They will like the <laughs> story. Uh, and a lot of them will go for the smell thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I checked this, you know, to be rigorous. I think it's difficult. There's cases where it's very hard to be sure about smell or something more paranormal. Because some dogs do have crazy sense of smell. And of course, you know, a polar bear can smell a carcass 20 miles away, um, etc. But but a collie, maybe 12 miles, um, it can smell something. They're not the best sniffing breed by any means. They're pretty good, but they're not the best. But you're talking about the absolute depths of a mid-American winter. You know, the Rocky Mountains. I mean, freezing plains, deserts, rivers um, in November, December, January, uh, there, there just is nothing for the dog to smell. I mean, you know, I think, to be honest, whatever the weather, it would have gone cold, it would have gone dead, wouldn't it? Whatever trail these people had left, bearing in mind they're in a car, they're on roads, you know, laden with petrol, which is pretty much homogeneous, I'd imagine, to a dog. Um, so, yeah, people will go for the smell thing. There's a, a case in 2012, a guy, rather oddly, um, where he moved to in Florida, I think it was, uh, he wasn't, they weren't allowed to have dogs. I mean, no dogs in the whole area, which is a bit kind of weirdly biophobic. Um, another subject I'm interested in is this increasing terror of nature amongst the privileged. Anyway, couldn't have a dog, so he left it behind with some friends in, I think it was Carolina. 500 miles away and the dog finds him in florida you know it, it travels 500 miles takes it to the vet i suppose to get it checked out 
Um, useful thing now, of course, you've got microchips. So if somebody says, well, that's another dog, it's not your dog. Yeah, it's my dog. Look, it's it's microchipped. It's verified these cases recently. Um, anyway, the vet says, yeah, I mean, you look at the dog when it got home, it was going all over its old basket and all over him. I mean, you know, its sense of smell was going crazy. Yeah, but 500 miles. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's it smelling exactly? Is this guy left a scent trail across 500 miles when he drove or flew or whatever it was? to his destination. So yeah, I, I think, you know, science has got very powerful, very successful, and it's got a lot of cachet, which a lot of it, it deserves, and I'm a big fan of it. But some of it, I think they get a bit carried away. And, you know, people are looking up to you, what's the answer? What's the answer It's a bit tempting to come up with an answer, because that's sort of your job as a vet or an animal studies professor. Um, but if you're reaching for smell in a case like that, I think your, you know, your explanation is more irrational than my explanation, which I grant you seems weird, but but is is, is a better bet. Yeah, I'm. I think you're right. It is easy to assume it's it's instinct, which has led to these miraculous journeys. But obviously, there's there's more going on here. And I, I know in the article you've written. You, you mentioned a book by a chap called Robert Chapman called Telepathy, Clairvoyance and Precognition. And, and that cites some interesting research that was done about about dogs that were released far from home. And, and a fair proportion of those were able to get home. That's right. That's been really invaluable. It's Charman. Um, it's slightly unusual name, Charman, not Chapman. But um, oh, yeah, that's, I really recommend the book as a whole, actually. It's, it's an excellent kind of very concise, very no nonsense, very balanced um presentation of loads of paranormal cases uh from a guy who's worked as a professional um, physiotherapist all his life you know he's in a hard-headed discipline during his professional life now retired um and that's invaluable the the cases from muller i think the germans have, have done a lot of this research they did it in the 30s they did it in the 60s and this guy muller um rightly or wrongly i mean there seems to be some debate about this now he classified his dogs before he started the experiments into alpha dogs at the sort of top you know the ones that would lead the other dogs the um yeah the the the, the tough the sort of dominating ones um upper intermediary intermediary i think maybe omega dogs down below um whether this is right or wrong his classifications that he made played out in terms of which dogs could do the homing so some dogs just got lost they just had to appeal to somebody uh which is a good strategy uh in lots of cases especially a cute looking dog uh but the dogs that could do it is about 30 percent. they were mainly the alpha dogs mainly uh, otherwise upper intermediary dogs as muller called them and they would walk about in what seemed a slightly uh, meaningless manner for a little while, but might not be given what we've heard from Czech research in the last few years more recently. Anyway, after this sort of seemingly aimless wandering, their heads would go up with almost like a snap, almost like a compass needle going up the way it's described. And then they were off and they didn't really stop. It was as though they were going on tram lines, on railway lines, um, they they made better progress when it was dark or when it was foggy, uh, as though there was something like a kind of magnetic trail. I'm just using this as the best kind of analogy we have, uh, rather than actually being magnetic. But something real and powerful drawing them and leading them. And 
when there was less kind of visual stimuli to distract, they did better and got faster. And over repeated experiments, they would take shortcuts and make the same trip quicker. And this has been seen many times with with uh, experiments that, that the dog gets better at it. But it's the dogs that what they do is it's called scouting. So sniffing, or I think they use the term tracking for sniffing as well, is certainly seen. And a Czech study recently found that dogs could make their way, wasn't a huge distance, about a kilometre uh, back to the handler by sniffing. So fine, you know, that works for a short distance. Uh, but the most successful dogs are doing it quicker. And then we're getting quicker and quicker over time were the scouting dogs who the Czechs thought that they seemed to be using the geomagnetic axis north to south for a little while before they got going. Now, I don't know about that. I, it's just an open question that. But what that leaves unanswered is how a dog finds exactly the right place. You know, it finds exactly its house across perhaps over 2000 miles. And many of these journeys are 200 miles upwards. I mean, there are many, many of those. I don't think we'll ever get to the end of them. Um, how does it find that exact place? Or stranger still, perhaps, how does it find the exact person when they're in a completely different country that they've moved to, that the dog has never seen before? You know, this has happened. Mm. So it's as though there's something, a very powerful link between animal emotion that lays down a print, but a very, you know, a real thing is kind of like a beacon there on that house, that person, that family. and how long does that take to form? How many years does it need? Uh, what type of dog? How much you know love does it have to have? Who knows? But but you know the Lassie story has certainly happened. I mean, somebody doesn't love the dog enough to not sell them for money, and yet they come back to that person seven hundred miles across America. Mm. You know, when they were sent by train, um, and they clearly weren't so beloved that they they couldn't be sold. So yeah, some something. You know, we have the clues, we have the parameters, we don't have a full explanation, but we, we know in a lot of cases what it is not. And it is not a sense of smell that is able to do that across that distance and, and that length of time that, you know, there isn't anything that powerful to linger for a year or, or, or so in some cases. And, you know, that precise that it turns up on a doorstep. I mean, interesting case, just briefly, I found in this research, Alsatian called Barry in the 70s in Germany. A great name for a dog. <laughs> yes. Um, well, apparently, um, Barry Miles, the um, the great chronicler of the 1960s, um, he... Um, he, he was he was called Barry and he he always hated it and always called himself Miles because his, his mother was always confused between shouting for him and the Alsatian Barry next door. Child. Um, <laughs> so it's not unknown. But um, anyway, Barry um, still loved his owner despite being called Barry the Alsatian. But his owner found that the dog was too big eventually for his small flat in West Germany. So he gave it to a friend, got a bigger place. I suppose he thought he'd see the dog. I guess he did. Uh, quite a bit the friend went on a holiday to Bari in southern Italy about 1200 miles away the dog got lost on the holiday lots of exciting things in Bari probably uh, for a German dog couldn't find it guy comes home um, and uh, I think it's a year later the dog turns up on Christmas Eve 1973 on the doorstep of the original owner you know so if there's a choice in I don't know how big Solingen is, but there's got to be a fair bit of choice uh, between one address and another. Um, 
assuming they didn't live in the same block, which I guess they didn't because they both have small flats. Yeah, he's, he's picked his original owner. You know, that's where the, the beacon really is. That's where the power is. Uh, and that's what draws him back. Yeah, it's another example where obviously there's there's more going on here than just an amazing sense of smell and even even a, a great sense of direction. There's absolutely something else here and something you yourself describe as perhaps the most incredible adventure of this type is involves an Irish terrier called Prince and his owner, Private James Brown. This was back in World War One. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this this really, when I've seen a lot of strange things, has really knocked me off my feet because Prince started off as a puppy with James Brown in uh, Ireland with a regiment. Brown was a soldier before war broke out and Prince loved the regiment. You know, he loved the soldier's life and he would romp about crazily in all directions, covering unnecessary ground while the soldiers were resentfully doing the basic march day to day. Uh, and still have boundless energy at the end of the day. So he knew James Brown much more than Brown's wife. Um, This is important, as it turns out. Brown gets called up to war, and off he goes in, I think, late August to Armentier in France. Um, The the family moves about a bit, but the wife and Prince the dog presently settle in Hammersmith in London. And the dog goes missing after a short period of time being settled there, she writes to Brown and says, I'm sorry to say that Prince has disappeared and he can't be found anywhere. Brown writes back to her in, I think, late November and says, well, I'm sorry to say Prince has disappeared, but you won't find him there because he's here with me. Uh, this was verified. It was clearly his dog and he had travelled about 200 miles uh, to a place it had never been before. It, it, it's not that difficult to see how it got across the channel because obviously a vast number of troops are going across all the time and he knows what troops look like and probably knows what troops smell like, I think. Um, but how would it find Brown in Armentier in France? I mean, thousands, thousands of soldiers every damn where. And it's not exactly as though this is just Calais or, you know, somewhere in, in Normandy. Uh, it's some way down into into France. So lovely story in that um, it became the regiment's mascot. It uh, had its own khaki jacket. It killed prodigious numbers of rats. It could do for 137 in one day. It used to ride about on a horse. It would do lots of tricks. Uh, and it survived the war along with James Brown. If you look at accounts of this, there's some good accounts. And there's one one lovely surviving picture. Nothing else I don't think of the dog, but this one black and white picture. If you look at the accounts, they try and say um, that the dog got away with troops and and went across um, with them. But to do this, they fudge the dates. They get the dates wrong because if you you've got a precise, quite a precise chronology of dates with these letters and so forth, and they can't really explain um, what the dog was doing in a sort of blank period of time because they say that oh, it was such a regiment went over to Armentier and it was with them but the dates don't fit you know and I've got another story from around about 1900 where a dog called imaginatively Mr Doggy was the mascot of a regiment in Berkshire I think it was and they went off to the Boer War presently took the dog with them got fond of it 
and they lost it on their first uh, disembarkation when the ship hit the first port down in South Africa. They couldn't find it. They carried on. They then made another stop, I think, by boat. They then marched over land about 300 miles, so about 500 miles difference to where they'd lost the dog, and the dog finds them somewhere you know, deep inside South Africa. Um, as though, yeah, they've got a beacon, an imprint on them. And um, that, as, as we, we briefly glanced at, perhaps, has happened with at least one cat, a very famous 1950s case of a Persian cat called Sugar. The uh, family moved to uh, Oklahoma from California, about a thousand miles. There's different versions of why they left the cat behind, so I won't go for one or the other, but they, they felt they had to leave it behind. Partly it didn't seem to like car travel. Anyway, it was staying with another family, it kind of adopted it. Presently, the family phones these people in uh, Oklahoma and says, sorry to say Sugar's disappeared, looked everywhere, we can't find her. And about a year later after this disappearance, the cat turns up uh, in the backyard, it seems to be, of the, the family in Oklahoma. It looks like the cat, it looks in a state, it looks like it's walked a long way. The woman's thinking, well, it could be any cat, you know, it'd be nice to have my cat back, but you know cats I mean it's a lot of them looking for homes anyway she puts her hand on a cat and it has got the exact hip defect that her cat used to have so here we have a cat which is a bit more unusual it seems to like their homes more than their owners finding its owner across a thousand miles somewhere it's never been to you know again the cat has got the animal's got this beacon has got this weird kind of psychic imprint uh, on the owners and, and there you've, you've got it very clear for you it's not the place it's it's the person yeah even if we move past instinct and it, it i mean it feels like with prince for example he's demonstrating uh, critical thinking <laughs> in terms of how to decide how to best try and find private james brown um but as well it's it's um incredible determination and i you know, you end your article by saying, perhaps we will fully understand the exact science of these uncanny adventures someday. But for now, the most accurate and plausible answer to how they all did it is simply love. And I think that's a, that's a great way to end that article and, and, and something that I think is more than likely the, the answer. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, we, we, we can't entirely get inside a dog's or a cat's head or body and know what that love feels like. But it clearly is very, very powerful. I think that old fashion of pretending that animals didn't have emotions, you know, is, is rightly laid to rest now because you get stories about um, dogs reunited with their owners where they go crazy with joy. You know, people think they're going to kind of die of joy uh, in the initial stages of, of being reunited with them. And um, there is... Um, Bobby's family is, is, is now long gone, of course, but there is a lady around, as far as I can tell, still in Italy, using the wonderful um, homing device known as the, the, the Facebook. Um, Mirna Berlatani was a little girl in Italy in the 1950s and I think early 60s. And there is a wonderful, wonderful book, which would it, it, it's a book that a guy wrote only because of a dog really. I mean, in some ways, the dog wrote the book. But the last <laughs> great railway dog was Lampo um, in Campa Mar Maritima, in Campiglia Maritima, sorry, uh, not far from Rome. The dog just turned up in um, this station. 
out of nowhere. No one knew where he came from. So he was called Lampo, which means lightning. Turned up out of nowhere like lightning. And people got fond of the dog. Um, he, he loved the station. He became fond of Balatani, who was the, the junior station master. He wasn't the, the guy in charge, uh, which was important, as we'll see. But anyway, um, he, he, he liked the station. He liked Balatani's family. And he, he had a weird routine, which, again, really defies rational explanation as we know it, that he would stop the night in the station and then he would catch a train uh, to another station, which was Balatani's hometown or home stop. And he would get to the Balatani household in time every single morning uh, to walk Mirna Berlatani. And you can, you can see pictures of her and the dog. Um, she's about four or five years old, possibly even younger, walking her to kindergarten every morning. The dog then goes back to, I don't know if he goes back to the house, but he goes back to the station. He catches another train to go back to Campo Maritima, Campilia Maritima. He, he spends a bit of time there. He enjoys watching the trains. And he, he seems always to know when a train's going to come in way before anybody else. This, this one's looking at a bit more. Anyway, in the afternoon, he gets his journey again in reverse. He goes back to the home stop of the Balatani family. He walks back to the kindergarten. He meets Mina. He walks her home. He does this for a long, long time, I think possibly years. Um, eventually, the station master in charge of Balatani and the whole place gets a bit nervy about the safety problems with the dog and he exiles him down south, um, I think to Naples. And everyone's very sad, not least, of course, Mina, presumably, has lost her childhood dog. So months go by, I think it might be six months, and everyone's given up on the dog and it comes back on a train from Naples. Um, the station master's still not having it. And he exiles the dog by train even farther to the very south of Italy, as far as I gather. And this time, an even longer period goes by. They completely give up on the dog and it comes back again. Uh, presently becoming so famous that in 1961, I think it is, um, it's in This Week magazine, which was then a very big magazine in America, and it gets more space than President Kennedy. Um, and yeah, like Kennedy, dies an unnatural death, but I think a happier one um, is killed on the rails eventually at quite a good age. Uh, and yeah, Lampo has his statue up there in the station. You can see it to this day. So I think, you know, a lot of other countries have done a bit better than than Britain has. I would like to see a statue for Railway Jack. But uh, yeah, that's that kind of love. I think if you ask Mila Bertani, I'm hoping to get in touch with her. I think she'll have very vivid memories of Lampo. Um, you know, we understand the love, but how he did it day after day after day, we, we don't really understand. He never seemed to get on the wrong train. Yeah, it's remarkable. As, as someone who loves trains, I am a big fan of Railway Jack. <laughs> well, Richard, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Likewise. Thank, thank you. Many, many thanks. It's been, it's been a great range and great, great hour and a bit. Thank you. If people want to find out more about yourself and your books, how best do they do that? Yeah. Um, I am on quite a few other podcasts um, for different subjects. Obviously, it's quite a range of things, but pretty much everything is on uh, Amazon. So I've got an unusual name. Luckily, you can find um, my books there. 
and I do post on research, new research, old research, ongoing things on Twitter pretty much every day. Um, and one that's very much worth mentioning, along with TikTok and Instagram, is Substack, which is in its early stages for me at the moment. But the advantage of this is you can post longer videos than on Twitter. You can post long pieces of text. So if you want to get a taste of uh, Talking Dirty, History of Disgust or Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires or The Smoke of the Soul and other books. I'll be putting stuff up there as time allows. Um, introductions to those are up there and and that gives you, you know, long reads on on quite a lot of my research, along with just videos talking about uh, little individual stories. So, yeah, that covers most things, I think. Um, if anyone uh, wants to get in touch with me on Twitter um, or via yourself, Dog stories, I would love to hear. You know, I've started getting them already since today's story has gone up. And I really do think a lot of fascinating stories that we haven't guessed at yet are, are sitting out there, you know, from everyday dog walks in, in all parts of the world. And um, love to hear more of those. Great. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put information about your social media in the show notes. Great. Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Richard. I think he's an example of a true 14 and was such fun to chat with. There is a link to his website and the recent Guardian article about the homing abilities of dogs in the show notes. He's a lively presence on social media too, so it's well worth checking out if you enjoyed this episode. If possible, please also rate it and leave a short review wherever you listen, as it really helps to promote the podcast and grow an audience. Sharing it on social media, or even just telling a friend, is really helpful too. You can follow some other sphere on X, formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky, and Mastodon, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ. The address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you about an episode you've enjoyed or suggestions for future guests and topics. Until next time, take care of yourselves and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere. <laughs>